When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, we get into why every resistance group needs a damn good PR strategy. Welcome to Lore Party, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes of our favorite video games. I'm Brett. And my name's Abu. And Brett, it has been a while, man. I'm glad we're back on our Witcher grind. Yeah, it's been a little bit too long, but I do think today, today we've got a nice, lovely, uplifting topic. Oh, as always. That, that's the entire Witcher MO, I think, right? So, today we're talking about the Scoia'tael the non-human resistance group. And we're going to be talking more largely about just human and elvish relationships because the Scoia'tael are sort of the result of this long history between humans and elves and humans and non-humans, dwarves, gnomes. um, Anybody who's not human essentially gets treated like a second-class citizen because that's what humans do. (laughs) And it results in this resistance group doing a lot of shit yeah the the dwarves and gnomes kind of get the short end of the stick like it's mainly the elves yeah when you think of scoia'tael it's it's the elves mainly because it's elven you know for squirrels but basically yeah the humans were the last ones to get on the continent which that's that's another thing i won't go on too big a tangent about like it's just the continent there's no name for the witcher continent Right, and it's not Sikoski like Middle never Earth. named it. Yeah, it's just yeah. called the continent. Yeah, which at first I was like, well, that's kind of weird. And then I was like, well, you know, I kind of like it that he didn't name it. Then I thought, why wouldn't you name it? <laughs> like, you would think like it's fantasy. The whole point or the whole fun of writing fantasy is you could think of these weird names. and Right, the world building. Like, and like you, yeah, you the world building universe and, and you populate it with all your little ideas. Yes, which again was done really well. And then it's like, oh yeah, the continent. No one ever calls it anything else. <laughs> you would think somebody would just say like, oh, yeah, this. Like there'd be an elven word for it or a gnome. You know, someone who was there long before the humans, but apparently not. Yeah, apparently not. Well, we, we should actually get into that because there's actually a long history before the humans arrive, which I find really interesting. And unlike a lot of other fantasy out there, humanity wasn't around for, you know, since the beginning. And in fact, humanity was sort of this accident of something called the conjunction of spheres, and they showed up in a world that was already populated by dwarves and gnomes and elves, which I find extremely fascinating. This unnamed continent was already populated by these quote-unquote elder races, and then humans showed up, and as we do, started just fucking shit up. Yeah, a good introduction or explanation of the conjunction of the spheres is in the beginning to The Witcher 3, that opening cinematic, where it explains that that's where magic and all these monsters kind of came into this world. Mm -hmm. And basically, yeah, 
as Sapkowski is prone to do, humans come in and, as you said perfectly, <laughs> did what humans do, where they come in and they're like, oh, we like that, we want that. So we're going to be all kind of buddy-buddy at first, and then we're kind of going to take advantage of you. And we're going to kick you off your lands, and then act like it was ours to begin with, and then persecute you for being on that land. And it's mainly was the elves. And a big thing about the elves was, you have the insade, which I looked at the pronunciation of that, and I believe that's how you say it. <laughs> nice. And the NL. The insade are basically the elves that are in the continent, and the NL were the elves who left to inhabit another world, the most famous of them being the Wild Hunt, Aridin and all of them, mm -hmm. is known from it. So those are two big differences in the elves. They do share a common ancestry, but you're correct that, that they eventually split off and the, the end said, there's going to be a lot of pronunciation problems for me this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get it. We'll get it. But the, the end said, you're right, are the elves that we sort of know and interact with in the games and who Geralt interacts with, with for the most part. Uh, let, let's continue through the history of humans and elves. So the humans have shown up. They've started to take over land. And like you were saying, they are essentially expanding at a shocking rate. Uh, the elves and the humans try to, at first, do some di diplomacy, get along, do some collaboration. At one point, the elves even take some human children under their wings and try to train them in their ways and in magic. Um, but all of that doesn't really work out because there's still a lot of racism and hatred, essentially, between the two races. And I think the most relevant example of that is this dude named Milan Rapinek and his, uh, you know, his casual slaughter <laughs> of elves at Loch Muin and his very famous quote. Yeah, a good elf, or the only good elf, is a dead elf. Mm. And yeah, he led that slaughter at Loch Muin. And if that sounds familiar to people, that was the location of the climax of The Witcher 2, that summit. But this can be what you can say is the catalyst that really started to where the elves were like, okay, they're not going to stop expanding. And when we say they were talking about the northern kingdoms, and there's a bunch of different northern kingdoms, but the one thing they were always together on was we want to expand. And hey, let's not, we can expand against each other, sure, but let's do that through marriages and all that. These elves, these non-humans, eh, let's just kick them off their land. That culminates in the elven leader, if you will, Aelorin, which is the White Rose of Shearowed. And Aelorin decided, in, as they were fighting back, to where she was going to say, or what she did was, we're not going to let our palaces and our civilization fall into human hands. We're going to destroy it and then make a final stand. And we call it a final stand because she died and took with her a lot of young elves too. And this is explained in the book Blood of Elves when Geralt shows Ciri this ruins of this palace that they never truly recovered. And the elves have really been on the defensive and have been short in numbers ever since this last stand. So she's a hero to the elves, but at the same time, it's almost looked at that was just a disaster. Like, yeah, you made a final stand and we'll build a statue to you and sing songs about you. But this was almost 
a death rattle for the elves. Right. I mean, I think to Aloran, it became clear that the humans were not going to stop. There were some elder elves who were like, no, let's just move out of our cities and outlive these humans, right? Like, we are essentially immortal. We live lives that are much, much longer than humans. Let's just wait it out and let's outlive them. And then Aloran (laughs) disagreed and decided revolution was the way to go. Um, But you're right. She became a hero in Elvish and human folklore, but she lost. She lost pretty bad and... You're absolutely correct that alongside her were a lot of other young elves, and elves are only fertile when they're young. And they go to war and get killed off in Aloran's revolution. That's a devastating blow to the elves, and that's one that, to this day, to modern day, you know, the books and the games and where the story picks up and where we as the player jump in, the elves are still recovering from that fatal blow of Aloran losing. And that really comes to define this relationship between the elves and the humans. There's been, it started off with some cooperation, but then basically battles on both sides of the aisle and incessant human expansion has led it to the point where, you know, there's a lot of animosity between the two races. And that sets the scene for why a resistance group like the Scoia'tael would, you know, sort of be created. Yeah, and I'm not saying this is where... Uh, Sepkowski got it from at all. Like, there's nothing to do that. This is just someone who, you know, from America and studied American history. The easiest correlation to hear would be the Native Americans. And I'm not trying to say that Native Americans are a different race, like yeah, Native Americans, yeah. the elves, and human, anything like yeah, that. Yeah, no, I agree. There's, but, there's like a whole colonialism vibe here. Yeah, the humans came over, Europeans predominantly came over. And at first it was working together. You know, we have our story of thanksgiving which is a whole other thing but (laughs) come in and then eventually it's like no we we want this land and we'll use whatever reasoning to do so kick them off their lands and start all of this you know fighting a lot of times scoia'tail tactics are almost like uh, native american tactics but eventually they're kicked off their lands they're replaced and they became second-class citizens and even to this day in american history Native Americans have never really recovered or been to where they were when the Europeans came. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Like, I think that's a totally fair comparison to make. The entire time I was doing research for this episode in particular, I kept going back to that where I was like, wow, this is just like a huge sort of allegory for just colonialism, just humanity showing up, wiping out whatever the indigenous population is simply because humanity can't control itself and wants to continue to expand and will do it at any cost. Uh, I think that's a totally fair comparison to make. The difference here is that the Scoia'tael were formed out of this sort of prejudice and this fraught relationship between humans and non-humans in a sort of resistance group. And there are parallels you can draw to real-life examples of something like that happening too, but I think the Scoia'tael are unique in the way that they allied with the Nilfgaard, which ultimately sort of bit them in the ass. Yeah, that's a, that's a perfect segue, especially into the irony. Because like we said, it was colonialism, it was imperialism of the northern realms that kicked them off their lands. And so they ally with the Nilfgaardian Empire, who are going to use imperialism and <laughs> colonialism to take 
back land. So again, it's it's and I, it's we're beating a dead horse by saying this, yeah. but it is like the perfect thing of The Witcher, where it is there is no good, like complete altruistic good, where somebody out there was trying to do good by everybody, and then their tactics kind of did it, which I actually like because that's not realistic. Everybody who's tried that in history has lost right. <laughs> because right. you have to get your hands dirty. Um, so they ally with Nilfgaard. The main thing happened was conquest of Dol Blathana, and the elves, dwarves, gnomes, and halflings are finally saying, like, okay, we're not going to be able to get our lands back or even survive with diplomacy. So they ally with Nilfgaard mainly through the Secret Service so they can be kind of used the underhanded tactics. And they started supporting this invasion during the Second Northern War. The first invasion of Nilfgaard did not do any of that. And the Nilfgaardians realized, hey, we have a huge weapon here to use. And I emphasize the word use because right, they use right. them with promises of revenge and recovery of their lands. Right. They were just a tool to essentially sow dissent and chaos within the northern realms without actually sending your own Nilfgaardian armies in directly. It, it was, they, that's all they were to Emir and to the Nilfgaardians. The Scoia'tael were just this tool that they could use that was already on the inside of the northern kingdoms and was already, you know, they already hated the northern kingdoms. There wasn't a whole lot of convincing to be done there. They just made some empty promises about giving them their land back and their freedoms back. Yeah, and the one thing, though, that they did keep their word on was the Dolbathana. And Dolbathana was established and given to the elves with Francisca Findebear, uh, Enid on Glenna, and she was made queen of Dolbathana. And they kept their word on that aspect, but then kind of the end outcome was a little bit muddled, yeah. but we'll get there. But for the most part, like, that was it. But yeah, it's, again, the historical correlation here would be World War II, the Eastern European partisans fighting back against the Nazis, and you had the Russian, uh, the Soviets who came back, and they were like, okay, we'll use them, because they cost us nothing. You know, they're out there fighting, okay, disrupt their line of supplies, just basically give them hell behind the lines. And then, oh, yeah, what do you want? Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. Um, we'll worry about that after the war. But for now, do all this. And as you kind of learn, after the war, it's a little bit like, well, you don't really have any leverage now. We're kind of going to do whatever we want with you now. Yeah, just completely got used. Just, just a tool for the Nilfgaardians. And, then, and then we'll talk about this later when we talk about the Scoia'tael and their, their sort of vision. But that's one thing that I absolutely had a problem with. Um, but before we get into that, Let's actually talk about the Scoia'tael specifically. Um, you already mentioned earlier in the episode that Scoia'tael translates to squirrel. They also attach squirrel tails to their clothing. So two reasons why, why they're known as the squirrels. Um, their structure, though, is just small commando groups, if I'm not mistaken. They, they don't have like a central governing body or somebody who is sort of organizing all of this they're all they're just small pockets of commando groups who are essentially fighting against humans in some sort of attempt to regain their lands and their freedoms yeah the only one that i believe was mentioned that was more organized if you will was the Vriad brigade which was led by isengrim fualtierna <laughs> i think it's about it yeah Fualtierna. <laughs> yeah and they operated under 
like direct enough guarding command is what it said. Like it was like the fourth cavalry. Yeah. And they were famous for Brenna, which again, we'll get to because everything seems to come to a head at the battle of Brenna. But for the most part, yeah, it was, they were behind the lines. They were in the forests and it became, they might attack it anytime. They might attack an outlying village they might attack a wagon train, any kind of supply train. It could just be a random merchant train. So if you were traveling, if you're human, and traveling on your own through these lands, you're just waiting to get ambushed, especially if you had no protection. Right. There, it was completely guerrilla tactics. And you actually wrote down in our notes, I see here, psychological warfare. The idea of, like, if I am a human merchant... This road may or may not be safe because there might be Scoia'tael just waiting to fucking kill me. You know, like that, that I think was a big part of their strategy was strike fear into the hearts of humanity. Uh, whether or not that was the right way to go and whether or not that was the correct PR message to be sending out as a non-human group, I'm not so sure. But what's interesting is I don't know if I would categorize this necessarily as... Um, guerrilla warfare to me seems like something that you know the american colonies did against the british army this strikes me as a little bit different than like oh we we are like a small group grassroots group a militia or a you know a collective that is fighting a superpower for our freedom that was american the american colonies trying to get their freedom from great britain this strikes me more as like, we are just sort of angry, oppressed people, and we're just fighting against everyone, if that makes sense, that, if that distinction makes sense. Yeah, with their, like the psychological warfare, where them and Nilf Guardians attack a village, and they don't take any prisoners. And the ones that survived, they rounded into a circle, and then basically just slaughtered. Like, what seems to be for fun. And those are the Nilfgaardians and the Scoia'tael. And so you kind of get that where they're not going to take any prisoners. You know, they're fighting under what was known as like a red flag, if you will. And the good thing about that is, is you strike fear into them. The bad thing about it is you're not going to get any prisoners taken either of your own. And so it just became this kill on sight and hang on the roads and be, this is what's going to happen if you fight us. And that just feeds into that anti-elven persecution where it's you're an elf you're going to be helping them right and you see that in the witcher 2 when you get to flotsam and it's just no there's scoia'tael out there which there really were scoia'tael out there so any elves well it's their race they're just going to help them like there's just yeah, only a matter of time just the assumption that every human yeah, just exactly. took that assumption yeah it's it, again it's where you want to say like oh they're bad but they, they, they were maybe, like their tactics were, but at the same time, it's that their land was taken. But right, yeah, but now they're right. with the Guardians, and it's just like, oh my God, everybody, can everybody lose? <laughs> and a new, a new society come out of this somehow? <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I think the vision of the Scoia'tael, I would agree with. I don't know if the actual reality of the Scoia'tael is something I could get behind. I, ju I just can't get behind the idea that they essentially just declared war on all humans. And they're like, yeah, if you're a human, we're going to, you know, we're going to slaughter you. That's our entire tactic. I, I just don't see what the end goal is. And we'll get into that a bit more because I have a lot of thoughts to share about the Scoia'tael. Yeah, but, I was, I was going to 
say that too. So yeah, we can get to, like I said before, everything culminates in the Battle of Brenna. And the outcome of the Battle of Brenna is the Nilfgaardian advance is stopped and essentially brings an end to the Second War. What out of that comes is the Peace of Sintra. Mm-hmm. Now, the main thing regarding the Scoia'tael comes from the Peace of Sintra is the Scoia'tael are done and Dolblathana, which stayed autonomous, but they were reduced to a rank of duchy, which, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it was equal treatment to humans and elves, but they had to essentially turn over 32 of the elven commanders that were branded as war criminals, and they would essentially be given a fair trial, wink, wink. Quote, unquote, okay. fair, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I think it's actually said that most of them were killed even before it. But out of that, Isengrim and Yorvith, who again become a major character in the games, they escape. And so this basically leaves the Scoia'tael on the run and with no allies at all. Because Nilfgaard basically says, like, okay, we're done with the Scoia'tael. And that was the only chance and the only support they really had. For the Scoia'tael, I think, losing those commandos, being branded as war criminals, they lost out. I don't think there was even a small victory for them in the end here. And Isengrim and Yorvith really just escaped with their lives from a situation that completely fell apart. Like, I think at that point, the Scoia'tael are, have crumbled. You know, like, Yorvith, I know, goes back and rebuilds some of his old squad again and gets some elves together, and there are small pockets of resistance that we come across in the games after the Battle of Brenna. But at this point, I think the Scoia'tael have basically failed their mission because they got stabbed in the back by Nilfgaard or they at least fell for the empty promises there. Yeah, and they 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 picked the wrong horse. Oh yeah. They sided with Nilfgaard and Nilfgaard lost. What would have been really interesting would have been what would have happened had Nilfgaard won. Would they have just taken everything and been like, "Oh yeah, you've got your Dol Blathana, and there you go." Would they have given them back some other lands? I don't think so. Probably not. I, yeah, I don't think so. Because just like you laid out earlier, once the war is won, let's say hypothetically Nilfgaard won the war, the Scoitel have no more chips to bargain with, right? Like the Nilfgaardians are, have the upper hand at this point. They can just tell them to fuck off. Like they use them for what they needed to. And with the victory, Nilfgaard can just be like, sure, here, I have no dull Blathana, but get, get the fuck out of our face. I don't think they would give the Scoitel any land one reason they may, and this I think is the only reason they would, is if somebody got in Emir's ear and just convinced him that it was smarter to just appease the Scoia'tael and give them some land so that they don't then become an internal problem for Nilfgaard as well. That would probably be the diplomatic reason to do that. Yeah, and the other thing would be the history of the Nilfgaardian and their relationship to elves and the language, and all of that. But, you know, with those invasions, even while the war was ongoing, they were settling. They were putting Nilfgaardian settlers in northern realms. And so it is. It's just, no, they were Nilfgaardians, you know? So this is for Nilfgaard and to do all that. So maybe, I don't know. I, I don't think so. When you have imperialistic expansionist empires like that, they're not into giving people their own land. I agree. I agree. I I think ultimately they wouldn't even go that diplomatic route, even if it was the smart route to go. I think they would be arrogant enough to just believe that they could crush the Scoia'tael if they ever rose up against them, you know? 
Like they have the largest yeah. military might on the on the continent. The Scoia'tael are just a bug that they can squash. And not only that, but then they could have used the northern the northerners they conquered to be like, oh, the elves are gonna threaten. Well, we'll use them to wipe them out. Yeah, and just then, conscript you know, them, yeah. kind of pit them against each other <laughs> and just stay back and be like, okay, y'all just y'all just kind of get at it. Wow, we are a cynical bunch, Brett. Goddamn. <laughs> I mean, it's again, it's hard, it's hard not to be. Yeah, when, it's, it's hard, hard not, not to be, be when you're dealing with like because the northern realms to me, the northern realms all suck. Like they're all a bunch of autocratic, absolute monarchs. They're yeah, no good. Yeah. The Nilfgaard, we've had a whole episode how I feel about Nilfgaard. Yep. And then, like you said, the Scoia'tael. I'm like, well, I, I sympathize with them, but you know, okay, right. maybe. I don't well, know. Well, let's actually dig into that because this is the part of the conversation that I've been just itching to get to. What are your thoughts on the Scoia'tael and the elves that join the Scoia'tael? Because we've covered this like very extensive human elf relationship up to this point. There's a lot of bloodshed there. There's a lot of hurt feelings, is probably an understatement, but it's a very fraught relationship. And you're saying you empathize with them. Does that mean you also agree with their cause and agree with their tactics? It's, and this is where, it's kind of where I'm going to be kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth, where it's, <laughs> I do, like, I, I get it because I understand why Native Americans fought back against the United States. I understand why everybody rises up against oppressors, especially when it's very clear there's no diplomatic Solution. If there's no diplomatic solution, why should you just sit back, kick a dog long enough, you know, it's going to bite. Mm, yeah. And so with the tactics go, if they're attacking supply trains and they're attacking wagon trains, and this is even to merchants, if they're attacking merchants who are supporting the war cause, they're all fair game. Do whatever you want to them. And when it comes to like the villages, even then I'm like, well, no, don't, don't attack the villages. But it's like, man, there's, they're on your land. Like, cause again, there's one thing from studying history, you can do a lot to people. You can kill them. You can try to genocide. You can enslave. You can do whatever, but you just don't take their land. You never take their land. Cause that's just going to go through generations. Like that's going to get passed on. So unless you literally wipe out every single person, somebody down the line is going to remember that was our land and those people took it from us. We need to get it back. Wow. That's such a good point, Brett. I, the land aspect of it, I didn't even think about, but that's so true. And there are countless real world examples. Like there's one, there's one that I can personally share. I was born in Pakistan and Pakistan broke off and gained independence from India like 70 odd years ago. Right. But the border there is certain land along the border that to this day, 70 plus years later, is disputed. And there is still bloodshed between India and Pakistan along that border over just small plots of land that people disagree on whose is who. And you're absolutely right. Like taking land, that is just a permanent stick in the mud that is going to be fought over forever. And it's something that the elves can go back to over and over again, that these were our castles these were our towns these were our homes that the humans took from us and you're right like that that just invites endless conflict for generations to come yeah because it becomes a chicken or the egg argument because if you want to keep going back eventually somebody would have taken it from someone 
until you're talking about, you know, for you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah, true. As soon as you take that land, you're giving the other country and the other people a reason for war for generations. Even though they those people might have taken that land, you know, 800 years before. And so it's one of those if somebody can remember it, then they'll have a reason for it. If nobody can remember who owned it first, then it's like, okay, that's in the past. Right. It's just it's it's really dumb reasoning. But in this case, it's they were there, you took their land, and they're tired of being kicked around, and they're going to flay you alive to get it back. Yeah. Wow, that's so... Wow, Brett, you are full of great quotes today. That's such a good quote. If somebody can remember it, they'll fight over it. That's so yeah, true that, when it comes to right land. That's right there will sum up any kind of conflict in history. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, so let me share my thoughts about this Goyatel. For the most part, I think I agree with you. I can empathize with their cause. I think I can even agree with their vision. You know, ultimately, the Scoia'tael were created to regain their land that was taken by humanity. I can get behind that. That's, you know, that's good. Like, give the elves their rights back. I love an underdog story. That's dope. What I can't get behind, and I, I already mentioned this briefly earlier, is the way they go about that. I don't agree with how they decided to essentially create these small commando cells and for all intents and purposes wage war against all of humanity i just don't think that's a winnable war right like what's the end game i don't think the scoyatel have an end game as far as i know and i don't think it's ever actually been made clear at least from a canon perspective in either the games or the books what do the scoyatel actually want you know because i think the idea of eradicating all humans and regaining all the land you've lost over generations, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. So what is, what's like the line in the sand that the Scoia'tael are willing to draw to where they will be happy and content? Is it getting something like Dol Blathana, getting your own province? Is it getting your own state, your own sovereign state? Is it getting your own kingdom? Like, where is the line to which the Scoia'tael will continue to fight. I don't think that's defined at all. And I think their structure in having these like small commando pockets, whose job is essentially to just terrorize humans, leads to any sort of actual vision or end goal. And that's the biggest problem I have with them. They're just doing it because they are oppressed and angry, which to be fair, they have every right to be. I think what it is, is the Scoia'tael realize the time of the elves is done it will never come back, and we're going to take as many humans with us and make as many humans' lives miserable as possible and make them pay. Because you're right, there isn't, there's no real, like, okay, they want the lands back. No, that's done. Like we said, you know, with Aileron and that last stand there, like, it's done. Everyone kind of understands that. So we just want to make them pay and kill as many people as possible. Yeah, and that's, yeah, you're right. And I, that's just a fanaticism that I can't get behind. Yeah, and, and one thing that I, I definitely should have mentioned earlier was not all elves, not all dwarves and all that are part of the Scoia'tael. You have Mahakam, you know, led by Bruver Hoog. They are, especially him, very anti-Scoia'tael. They don't like the Scoia'tael at all. You have Zoltan Shive and his band. They are not Scoia'tael either. And so what you have there is maybe, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think there was an end game. Like you said, yeah. 
to get together and do that, they're a bunch of killers. And what draws them to the Scoia'tael is they want to kill people. They don't want to go live on their own and do whatever it is. They want to fight and they want to kill. And they think that's what makes them so good. But I also think that's what makes them almost like a rabid dog is Nilfgaard took these rabid dogs and unleashed them on their enemy. And you're not, you can't rein them in. Like, right. that's it. Like, they're just going to die. Like, they're just going to kill as many as they can until they all are gone. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's just fanaticism. It's just emotion. It's just anger. And the Scoia'tael yeah, are just an outlet for angry non-humans who have just had enough to release that anger in a, the bloodiest way they can come up with. Well, that about wraps it up. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us grow the show. And be sure to connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at lore underscore party. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Man, my nose started fucking running, and I tried. <laughs> as I, I, a couple times, I know I was talking in there, and I, ha- I had to do that so I wouldn't start talking like that. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't believe it was like 10 minutes into recording it started running I was like you motherfucker <laughs>